choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 245 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 12, pinpoint landing, right down the middle of the road. On the previous episode, we left off just after the lunar module and command module undocked. At 108 hours, 22 minutes, mission elapsed time, Conrad and Bean in the lunar module Intrepid and Dick Gordon in the command module Yankee Clipper prepared for the separation burn. In this case, Dick Gordon would burn the service module's main engine for a short time to put some distance between Yankee Clipper and Intrepid. Clipper Houston, you go for step. Intrepid Houston, uh, give us a mark with one uh, minute to go to step, would you? Now, it's already one minute. Uh, I'll give you one at 45 seconds. Mark, 45 seconds. You concur with that uh, Yankee Clipper? I don't have every G yet, Pete. Okay, uh, I, I uh, may have copied the time down wrong or something. Oh, eight, 24, 42. Okay, 42. I got 22. Average G on. That time. Average G. Very good. I'll be watching you. Okay, we'll be looking for you, too. Okay, there he goes. He's burning. Intrepid Houston, uh, you were off on that figure by 20 seconds. Uh, CSM was right. Yeah, I had the wrong time. He's burning now, and uh, he looks good out there. Roger. With a successful separation burn, Gordon would now keep the spindly four-legged lunar module in sight by using his 2.8 power sextant. Since Apollo 12 was to perform a pinpoint lunar landing, I wanted to give some background information before we continue with the mission. In January of 1969, Pete Conrad had been a little disappointed not to be selected to fly the first lunar landing, and there were plenty of NASA people at the Cape and in Houston who were surprised when he didn't get to. Conrad was in mission control when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon in July, and he was there when everyone from the NASA managers in the control center to the geologist in the back room, to Mike Collins in lunar orbit, were trying to figure out where Armstrong and Aldrin had landed. Sam Phillips, the director of the Apollo Man Lunar Landing Program, turned to Bill Tyndall 
Chief of Apollo Data Priority Coordination and said, Next time, I want a pinpoint landing. Phillips' request was understandable. There was no point in having the geologist painstakingly choose a landing site when there was no certainty of being able to get there. But Tyndall thought it was impossible. After all, Eagle had landed four miles away from its aim point. The trajectory people had identified several sources for the error and had figured out how to prevent them from reoccurring. But one unknown persisted, namely the moon's lumpy gravity field. Even now, no one knew exactly what mass concentrations would do to the lunar module's path, so predicting its precise trajectory ahead of time was impossible. But when Bill Tyndall met with the trajectory experts, a young mathematician named Emil Scheisser made a breakthrough. The key was the Doppler effect, the apparent shift in frequency of light waves or sound waves emitted from a moving object as detected by a stationary observer. You can experience the Doppler effect standing next to a highway. The horn of a passing car seems to rise in pitch as it speeds towards you, then falls as it moves away. The same phenomenon changes the apparent frequency of radio waves received from the spacecraft moving toward or away from the tracking stations on Earth. Tiny Doppler shifts were already being used by controllers to analyze the trajectory of Apollo spacecraft during their lunar voyages. Radio signals from a lunar module in lunar orbit, Scheisser pointed out, had a predictable pattern of Doppler shift. The effect was strongest when the lander was flying over the edge of the moon as seen from Earth, and weakest when it was flying over the geographic center of the near side. If planners could predict the pattern of Doppler shifts, they could compare that information with the actual shifts they detected. The differences would in turn reveal whether the lunar module was off course and by how much. Scheisser's idea was brilliantly elegant, but it left the problem of how to give that information to the astronauts in a form that would be easy to feed into the lunar module's guidance computer. Soon, that answer too emerged in one of Bill Tyndall's meetings. The solution was to fool the computer into thinking the landing point itself had moved rather than the lander. That change required entering only a single number. At the same time, mission planners deliberated on where to send Apollo 12. They could simply have picked out a specific crater. But planning coordinator Jack Severe had a better idea. The unmanned Surveyor 3 probe was perched on the vast lava plain called the Ocean of Storms, where it had landed in April 1967. The geologists had already identified the Ocean of Storms as one of their candidate targets for the second landing. They suspected its rocks would be younger than 
and perhaps chemically different from those in the Sea of Tranquility. Now, Surveyor 3 became the target for the first pinpoint lunar landing. It was a bold decision to commit the system to such a visible measure of success or failure. If Conrad and Bean missed, everyone would know it. But that was exactly the point. This goal would drive NASA to achieve what had first seemed impossible. Now, Conrad was thrilled with his mission. If he couldn't make the first landing, this was the next best thing. He and Bean weren't simply going to get down in one piece, grab a few rocks and take off. Instead, they had the first lunar surface operations plan, a timeline packed with good, useful work for scientists. And if they really did manage to land next to the surveyor, they would open the way for the pinpoint landings the geologists wanted. As the months of training wore on, the simulator instructors at the Cape considered Conrad, Gordon, and Bean one of the sharpest, most competent teams they had ever trained for space. Conrad joked that they should solve NASA's crew selection worries by volunteering to fly every mission from then on, rotating seats on each flight. Next time it would be Gordon, Bean, and Conrad, then Bean, Conrad, and Gordon. By the day before launch, Conrad felt ready. The mission he had worked toward for seven long years was finally upon him. That night, he and Gordon and Bean were joined for dinner in the crew quarters by Administrator Thomas Payne. Later, in the parking lot, Payne made a promise to Conrad. If some problem came up and he didn't get to land, Payne said he would put Conrad and his crew on the very next mission so they shouldn't do anything rash. Conrad thanked Payne for his kind offer and said goodbye. He was halfway up the stairs when he realized Payne had made the same promise to Neil Armstrong. Now, returning to the Apollo 12 moon landing. While the command and service module remained in its circular orbit, the crew of the lunar module prepared for the first of two burns required to land on the moon. This first burn was called the Descent Orbit Insertion Burn. Its purpose was to place the lunar module in an orbit with a low point of 50,000 feet. This would also be done on the far side of the moon out of contact with Houston. Here's the audio just before loss of signal. Houston, what time is ALS? Uh, Intrepid Houston, uh, LOS is coming up uh, in four minutes. Okay, we'll try and have this alignment finished for you so you can look at it. Here's the star angle difference, Houston, four balls, two. Coming at you with the torquing angle. Roger, Pete. How's that grab you? You looking at the dipkey? Those are great. Your goal for DOI. And Trumpet Houston, we're looking at an AOS of 109.43.30. And Clipper Houston, we're looking for you, AOS at 109.41. Okay, I'll be there. And Trumpet Yankee Clipper, you're looking good. Uh, one minute to LOS, we'll see you on the other side. At 109 hours, 23 minutes, and 28 seconds mission elapsed time on the far side of the moon, 
Pete Conrad counted down to the descent orbit insertion burn. Reading from the transcript, Conrad said, 10, 9, 8, Ullage, 6, 5, flashing 99, engine armed, 2, 1, ignition, burning good, to what, 15 seconds? Bean, 15, Conrad, 15 seconds, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, Bean, go to 40, Conrad, 40%, Bean, okay now, Conrad, 18, 19, 21, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, shutdown. In transcript, it was a good burn. When Conrad and Bean fired their descent engine, Dick Gordon in the command module was looking straight up into Intrepid's engine bell. The spacecraft carrying his friends seemed to become a great glowing ball, like the view into a jet engine climbing on afterburner. Gordon radioed, Hey, I have you on sextant, looking right up your descent engine. Fantastic. The glow lasted just under half a minute, then died. Less than an hour later, it was time for the second burn, called the Power Descent Initiation Burn. Its purpose was to slow the lunar module down and land it on the moon. It would begin as Intrepid reached the low point of its orbit at 50,000 feet. This is Apollo Control, 109 hours, 41 minutes, ground elapsed time. 1 minute 53 seconds to acquisition of signal as uh, Intrepid and Yankee Clipper come around on the 14th lunar revolution. Some uh, 39 minutes away from the uh, power descent initiation. In the viewing room behind the control room here, it's standing room only. Among the people in the viewing room are NASA Administrator Dr. Thomas O. Payne and Mrs. Payne. The nominee for Deputy Administrator of NASA, George M. Lowe. Dr. George Miller, Associate Administrator, Office of Manned Spaceflight. Associate NASA Administrator, Dr. Homer Newell. John Noggle, Associate Administrator, Office of Space Science and Applications. Dr. Werner von Braun. Director of Marshall Space Flight Center. James C. Elms, Director of Electronic Research Center. Apollo 11 crewman Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Apollo 8 Commander Frank Borman. Dr. Stark Draper, Director of Instrumentation Laboratory at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And uh, quite a few other people from industry and NASA. Some, we've had uh, command module AOS. Let's uh, go live now and uh, see how the burn went for descent orbit initiate. Yankee Clipper, Houston, how do you read? Hi, Houston Clipper. Roger Clipper, Houston, loud and clear. Roger, good bird, good bird. Roger. 
descent, uh, Lunar Module Pilot Alan Bean will read out of the LIM guidance computer such numbers as range to go to the landing site, horizontal velocity, and the angle at which Commander Pete Conrad should look to spot the landing site through the landing point designator etched on the left-hand window of the lunar module. During the final phase, from 500 feet down, Houston, no transients. Following low gate at 500 feet, Bean will add in the uh, so-called H-dot, or vertical velocity, rate of descent. Hello, Houston. Uh, hello, Yankee Clipper. Intrepid's up back. Houston, read you loud and clear. Intrepid has gone to the Vox mode in the communications, that is, voice-actuated circuit. Now, only one minute until PDI ignition. Mark, one minute. Watch is dirty, Pete. Roger, Pete. You can have descent at 35 seconds. I'll do it at 30, Al. Okay. This is blank. Average G descent engine is orange. I'm up on velocity light. Got it nice. Get a couple of lights there. Copy that arm. There was adrenaline in Pete Conrad's voice as he counted down the last seconds before ignition. He and Bean were still weightless, but their bodies were secured to the cabin floor by harnesses. Seven, six, five. Conrad pushed the proceed button on the computer, and a moment later, Intrepid's descent engine ignited 50,000 feet above the moon. Conrad suddenly flashed back to five years earlier when he was visiting the Grumman plant on Long Island and standing in a mock-up of the lunar module, then known as the Bug. The instrument panels were nothing but drawings pasted onto plywood, but Conrad had stood there and imagined himself descending to the surface of the moon. Now it was happening. There was no sound, but Bean could feel the vibrations through his feet, a high-frequency buzz and the onset of acceleration. Bean welcomed the acceleration. After five days of weightlessness, it felt good to be standing again. Conrad scanned the gauges and Intrepid continued its long ride down. Less than half a minute later, the computer throttled the engine up to full power and the men felt its force. It slowed the 15-ton spacecraft, dropping it out of lunar orbit and onto a path for the surface. At last, they were on their final approach. Bean felt the pressure. Everything mattered. Everything was for keeps. Okay. Hit it by for throttle-up, Houston. See him looks good. Throttle-up. It really feels good. Roger, Pete. Up. Copy. Throttle-up. Gets is looking good, Pete. All righty. Medium looks good. Regulators look good here. 
Okay, standing by for one minute hack. Okay. Ever since the pinpoint landing became his mission, Conrad had wondered whether Kraft's people really could pull it off. But they were confident. So confident, in fact, that Conrad sometimes had trouble taking them seriously. One day, Conrad was talking to trajectory specialist David Reed about the landing point. Reed asked, where do you want me to put you? Conrad doubted it would make much difference what he told Reed. After all, Armstrong and Aldrin had landed four miles off target. But Reed was talking like a travel agent making an airline reservation. Conrad went along and picked a spot with due consideration to sun angle, traverse distance, and the like. Then, after a few simulated landings, he changed his mind and went back to Reed for a new spot a few hundred feet to one side. Without batting an eye, Reed set about figuring out the necessary changes to the software, and Conrad couldn't believe the man was serious. He blurted out, You can't hit it anyhow. Target me for the center of the surveyor crater. Reed answered, You got it, babe. But Conrad would only believe it when he saw it. Intrepid Houston, throttle down at 6 plus 2-2. Two, two. We got her, 6 plus 2-2. Two, 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 two. This gave you a little AGS update. According to this here computer, it's right on the money. Better turn that sequence camera on in a moment. Okay. 6 plus 2-2 two, two for throttle down, huh? Okay, standing by for a throttle down. Things are nice. Six minutes and 23 seconds into the burn, the men felt the lander's engine throttle back under the computer's control and called out, Throttle down! Loud bangs from the lunar module's Reaction Control System Thrusters, or RCS, filled the cabin. Bean had jumped the first time he heard them. They were only an arm's length away, on the other side of the thin windows. They were firing much more often than they had in the simulator. Conrad said, This baby is really giving it the gazooey with the RCS, isn't it? Sure is, Bean said. Now Intrepid was tipped back, its engine pointing toward the landing site. Conrad and Bean were speeding toward the moon feet first, staring up into the blackness of space. Somewhere out ahead lay the target, a clump of craters that bore a rough resemblance to a snowman. On the slopes of the snowman's lower body sat Surveyor 3, or so the experts had determined. In the simulator, Conrad had studied the snowman until he could pick it out among the hundreds of craters that surrounded it. 
Seconds from now, Intrepid would pitch forward to begin the last phase of the descent. Conrad would be able to sight through a special grid on his window and see the snowman dead ahead, if Intrepid was on target. Even a minor error in the flight path could ruin Conrad's chances. Okay, Pete, being advised, seven minutes. Salutations from Southern Alabama. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 245 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 12 Pinpoint Landing Part 1 Right Down the Middle of the Road. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. In case you haven't heard, I have created an archive podcast that currently contains the first 48 episodes of the podcast. It's called the Space Rocket History Archive Podcast. The archive was created because iTunes kept rejecting my original RSS feed because there were so many episodes in it. So, by spending a little money for hosting services and some time to edit and post archive episodes, we now have the first 48 episodes available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. My server plan allows me to add 100 megabytes of episodes each month, and I max that out every month. There will be more episodes available in March, and the ultimate goal is to get the archive caught up with the main feed so all episodes will be available on the RSS feed all the time. Until that happens, there's a little bit of a gap, but we're working on it. Also, keep in mind, all the past episodes are still available at the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. To find the archive episodes, search for Space Rocket History Archive. Today, we salute my Patreon donors, Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thank you, Patreon donors, who have honored your pledge this month. Let's go for a 100% retention rate this month. Had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First of all, I want to give credit to my sources. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz. Rocket Man by Nancy Conrad. The Apollo 12 Flight Journal and Apollo, an eyewitness account by Alan Bean. Well, it seemed as though Pete Conrad had his doubts that Mission Control could execute a pinpoint landing. After all, Apollo 11 missed their landing site by four miles. So when Pete was asked where he wanted to land, he just gave them the target of the surveyor crater. He didn't think Mission Control could be that precise. Well... Next week, we will see just how close to the target that Mission Control could put the lunar module. Will Pete have to make a last-minute adjustment to avoid coming too close to the surveyor? 
We will find out next week. Also next week, in addition to the commentary of the landing, I will replay the entire landing starting at 50,000 feet all the way down to the moon without interruption so you can get a real sense of how quickly it really happened. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. John W. donated at the Orion level and earned his moon emoji. Paul E. donated at the Orion level. Mike B. from London donated at the shuttle level and earned his rocket emoji. Kara H. from Oklahoma donated at the Apollo level. Antoine C. from France donated at the Mercury level. Graham M. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned his shooting star emoji. Ben L. donated at the Mercury level. Otar D. donated at the Vostok level. Dennis K. donated at the Vostok level. Victor A. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level with rocket and moon emojis. And PJC pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Thank you so much for those donations to support the podcast. I sincerely appreciate it. Our Patreon donors are at 159, with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. Now, this is the rough time of the month for the Patreon donors, because they will be billed for next month, and that's usually when some Patreons fall off. So we're going for 100% retention on Patreon donors. So if you can, Patreon donors, please continue to support the podcast. Our overall donors for 2018 have reached 203, with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. Now, for those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it and I have an item to give away this week. It is the official Space Rocket History logo vinyl refrigerator magnet. It is awesome. It goes right on your refrigerator or other metallic object. It has the the picture of the official SRH logo with the rockets. To select the winner, I gave each 2018 donor a number. Put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Kurt Homer. Kurt Homer, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address I will mail this magnet right out to you. I was pleased to see the podcast received several new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past few weeks. I want to sincerely thank those who gave the all-important five-star rating and the very kind reviews as well. I certainly do appreciate it. Okay, that's all I have for this week. I hope to have episode 246 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.